How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you're in right relationship with the Lord. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're always grateful for the way you provide for us, the way you sustain us and take care of us, and all the many ways in which you protect us each day. Father, we're thankful for your word that guides and directs us. It's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we're thankful for the way you've provided for this congregation. We continue to pray that you will uh, supply each and every need that we have. And as we uh, go into this time period Coming up, related to negotiating a lease, we pray that you will uh, just enable us to uh, present our case wisely and that you will intercede in the thinking of the landlords in a way that is beneficial to us. Father, we're thankful for the way in which you've worked in the lives of numerous people who are facing health problems, some significant, some having had some surgery today. We pray that you would just continue to watch over them. Father, we're just thankful that we have your word to study and that you would open our eyes and light the eyes of our soul that we might further understand your word tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, before we get started, I'm going to... I had this tubed up earlier, but then I sort of slipped my mind. Okay, here we go. in your hands when you go on that mountain. You have electrical storms, you have high winds, you've got rocks that everyone moves under your foot. Back it up to the beginning. You know you're taking your life in your hands when you go on that mountain. You have electrical storms, you have high winds, you've got rocks that everyone moves under your foot. Turn up the volume a little bit, Eddie. It's a volcanic mountain. It's got unpredictable ice storms and snow storms. So it has to be a cause bigger and greater than yourself to motivate you to do that. We have come together to meet this challenge of scientifically examining, investigating, and revealing to the world the evidence that may exist for the Ozarko Amendment. Turn it up, Eddie. Now, this is Thursday, August 25th. The weather outside is very bad. We started work before 7 a.m. this morning. Yesterday, our American team worked very hard to bring us down to 20 feet. And we've been told from the data we need to get down to 25 feet. So uh, we're running against time. In one unique way, I've been called 
in my profession and in my Christian worldview to help substantiate and clarify and confirm the historical information in the Bible. There will always be people who reject the message and say, I'll never believe that, no matter what kind of data you bring, it doesn't matter, I'm convinced. There's no God, this couldn't have happened, everything is natural, there's, there's no supernatural intervention. And then there are people on the other side who say, you know, I really wish I could believe, but I don't have enough evidence. So like anything in archaeology, if there is a viable artifact that still exists and could be found, then there's no reason not to look for it. It's a war zone. You're all about dominated and controlled by the Kurds. It is under the sovereignty of Turkish authorities. Uh, in town, military operations, fighting is going on. They're trying to pull everybody off the mountain in the next several days. So we have a, a very you know, short time schedule to complete our task. But uh, with God's help, we think that can be done. When you're on the mountain, your humanity is part of what's there. You're not necessarily Christian, Muslim. You're a fellow human being, and you're helping one another. And so there's that sense of bond that you develop because of the situation. Dining excellence on Mount Ararat. When you come down from the mountain, that exists too. Did it. <laughs> There are people in other contexts we would never sit and talk together because of this union we have of common experience. There's a camaraderie and there's an acceptance. Everyone, whether they're Muslim or Jewish or Christian, the three accounts that have the art in their religious documents, all believe that the ark exists because their founding documents say it does. What's the truth? If we don't go, we won't know. Gives you a little bit. That's, of course, Randy Price. And um, it sounds much better on my laptop. I don't know what the problem with our... With our speakers, speakers, but I usually listen to these things at home, and everything's fine there until get up here and run it on the speaker here. So we need to do something to fix that. But you see something of the uh, challenge they have going up on Ararat, and everybody I've talked to over the last 40 years that's made an expedition up there has uh, has had some sort of you know, just horrible experiences because of the uh, the weather conditions. And in fact, there was um, um, a group that went back in seventy two or or uh, seventy three, and that one of the participants on that group was a guy by the name of Roger Lozier, whose father some of you may remember. Uh, Andy Lozier was a missionary for many years in Africa, and Roger was on that trip, and lightning struck a boulder right next to him and blasted him about 50 feet across a boulder field. So they've had a lot of adventures up there. And uh, 
But it'll be interesting to watch the film, and I'm sure the sound will be better in the theater than it is than it is here. All right, uh, open your Bibles with me to First Samuel chapter four. First Samuel chapter four, and we're going to see what happens in this chapter that are the cumulative effects, the cumulative consequences of Israel's sin over uh, a series of generations, and it just accumulated. Now, just a reminder, this is a period of the judges, and Israel has sought time and time again to solve their problems by relying upon their own resources and not following the Word of God, not doing what the Scripture said to do, and not trusting in the Lord uh, exclusively. And again and again, God turned Israel over to her enemies, and God is doing this in, as he has described that he would in Leviticus chapter 26 in the five cycles of discipline. And so what we see just by way of review is about four points. First of all, uh, we see that Israel is in this time of the judges. It's the worst time in Israel's history aside from the period that comes later just prior to the uh, judgment in 586 B.C. Their apostasy is is just unbelievable. There's no distinguishing them from the Canaanites around them. They started the period of the judges in obedience to God and having victory over their enemies, and they end the period of the judges under the domination of the Philistines. The conquest generation was successful, but it wasn't long before their successors began to compromise with the evil that existed in the land and not totally destroying Uh, not totally destroying the Canaanites. And so they began to live on the moral relativism and the spiritual relativism of the pagans in the nation. And twice in Judges, we have the statement by God that in those days there was no king in Israel. In other words, they had rejected God's authority. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, not what was right in God's eyes, but what's right in their own eyes. So they are compromising. And this is the cause of their failure. Is It's not because they had poor technology, poor education. It's not that they had poor administration or poor organization. It is because spiritually they had rejected the standards and the absolutes of God. And so now God takes them through an increase, a series of increasingly worse disasters as they've been invaded by uh, six different foreign powers And each time Israel, after uh, 20 or 30 or 40 years, turns to God in desperation, and God in his grace delivered them. He always met them where they were, and that's great comfort for us because we disobey God again and again and again. We turn to the Lord, we confess sin, God meets us where we are, and he's always in that process of trying to take us from where we are to, uh, to the destiny of spiritual maturity. So each time Israel goes through this cycle, and when we come to the end of Judges, they're under the oppression of the Philistines, and the last judge, about whom nothing good is said, who's the worst judge in the whole series, is Samson. And Samson is unable to overthrow the oppressing power. And that's the context that we see in our study. Now, the same thing that happens... Uh, in our lives. And there's two areas of application I brought out for us to think about in the framework of studying this. First of all, there's a national principle here, and that is a nation or a culture that does not follow biblical principles related to the divine institutions. 
And the divine institutions are uh, personal responsibility, individual responsibility toward God. Secondly, marriage. Third, family. Fourth, human government. And fifth, nationalism. If those are not followed, then that culture will implode and that nation will continue to have problems. There will not be freedom. There will only be tyranny. Personally, the counterpart to that is when individuals are compromising, just as Israel compromised with the Canaanites, individuals compromised with their sin nature. God gave Israel an order to go in and to completely annihilate man, woman, child, and beast, the Canaanites, to eradicate them. We have the same sort of mission. We'll never fully achieve it in the Christian life, but we have a seek-and-destroy mission on the, on the sin nature. It's not just a matter of confessing sin, but once we confess sin and we're walking by the Spirit, we are to put to death, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, put to death the deeds of the flesh or put to death the deeds of the sin nature. It is, it, it, we're not to uh, reach a detente. We're not to have an armistice. We're not to relax in the battle with the sin nature at all. Uh, but the problem is when you're constantly engaged in a battle, people get things distorted, and so you have a tendency for people to slip into legalism and forget about grace. So you always have this pendulum swing between overemphasizing grace and going into antinomianism where you just relax and you justify sin or you just act like it's really not that bad because it's been paid for on the cross, and the other extreme, which is making an issue out of every little thing in, in legalism, neither of which are, are, are biblical. Paul says in Romans 6 that we're to know something, that the old man, that is everything that, that we were before we were saved, was crucified with Christ. That means that the power of the sin nature was broken. That's what he then says, that the body of sin might be, future tense, might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. But in comparison, using Israel as an analogy, what happened when they compromised with the, with the Canaanites in the land is that they then became slaves to those oppressing powers. Now they're slaves to the Philistines. This is what happens when we don't fight the battle with our sin nature, is then we go back to being a slave of the sin nature. And Paul states the principle in verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And then in verses 11 and 12, he says, you also consider or reckon or count yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. I can't get any clearer than that. It's, 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 there's a seek and destroy mission there. Don't let it rain. But every time we choose to sin, we're letting the sin nature rain in our lives. So we have to reach that point where we don't give up in the battle. Romans six sixteen to 18, he goes on to say, Don't you know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? In other words, if you're obeying your sin nature, then you are putting yourselves in a position to be a slave to the sin nature. But if you're presenting yourself to God then you are uh, presenting yourself as a slave to righteousness. And this is the point in Romans 6 in defining the basis for our, for our sin nature. Now, in 1 Samuel 4, 
Israel faces a problem, just like we all face a problem, but their problem is the oppression of the Philistines who gathered against them. And I think I pointed this out last time. I'll look at the chart in just a minute. This is, I think, at the same time as that Samson is, is causing a lot of trouble in the south. And he's stirring up a lot of trouble. Uh, the text of 1 Samuel 4 doesn't say anything about why the Philistines are attacking them. And I think it's because of all the trouble that Samson's been uh, engaged in in the, uh, in, in the south. So <clears throat> what we see Israel doing here is not solving the problem by dependence upon God, but by dependence on their own ideas. They're going to do a right thing but they're going to do it in a wrong way. And that happens with Christians all the time. They want to do a right thing, but they don't understand the biblical pattern for how to do it, how to walk by the Spirit. And so they end up, as we see with Israel here, uh, trying to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, in other words, trying to solve their problem through their own effort or their, their own morality. And I pointed out last time, that this is one of the problems that we have is not trusting God fully in trying to add something to what God has provided. We look to personally to solving problems. We look to the Bible plus psychology. I remember hearing uh, classmates of mine in seminary and former graduates of Dallas Seminary, previous graduates of Dallas Seminary, uh, were interviewed back in the 70s, and they would be asked questions like, what was the one, th- if you could change one thing in the curriculum, what would it be? And they would say, we need to have more classes on counseling and psychology. I mean, they didn't really believe the Bible because with their biblical training, they didn't know how to help people. So I got to go learn from secular psychologists how to help people, assuming that their model of human behavior was correct. And there's there, there's over 300 different models of human behavior in psychology. So which one are you going to pick? Which one's biblical? Why not just start with the text and develop your model of human behavior from the text and forget everything that came down the secular pipe? But that's what happens is we look to something to go along with God. And another approach is we use, uh, we, we, we wrap what we're doing in a cloak of Christianity and biblical verbiage. This also happens with Christian psychology. I had a couple of uh, pastoral psych uh, professors at Dallas Seminary, Frank, or um, Meyer Minerth, I forget who was who, was who but uh, they went on to become quite well-known in, in the whole area. And if you read their book, along with a number of other Christian psychiatrists and psychologists uh, down through the dec- last two or three decades, they're loaded with biblical verses, and it has this veneer of Christianity, and they talk about, uh, in fact, I know of two or three that, will, that would always begin their books with a discussion on the sufficiency of Scripture. But then they violate the principle as soon as you start getting into the text, and you start looking up the Scriptures that they're using to support their points, and those Scriptures aren't supporting those points at all. But it gives it the veneer. You, you provide these proof texts, and it makes people think. And, and they believe this. They, they believe that that um, Paul Meyer and Frank Minner, that's who they were, and they believed that those texts supported their their position. But but they actually didn't. So this is one of the problems. Uh, one of the problems that we have. So we got into the outline just briefly. What's happening here is God's preparing to deliver Israel uh, with this great change. The first couple of chapters, 
focus on Samuel. Samuel is born in the first chapter, the praise of Samuel's birth in the beginning of the second chapter. Then uh, Yahweh orchestrates the collapse of the old order, which is the priesthood based on the descent of the house of Itamar rather than Eleazar, and this ends in the line of Eli. And he gives a prophetic announcement in 1 Samuel 2, 11 to 36, that he's going to destroy the house of Eli. The sign that that destruction's coming is the death on the same day of Eli's two sons. We're going to see that sign come to pass in this battle, in the battle of Aphek. So then in chapter 3, there's the calling of the first prophet of the new order, who is Samuel, who has been trained by Eli. And then in the last part of chapter uh, chapter 3, Yahweh commissioned Samuel to the mission. Now, uh, here is just to... This is the point that we're looking at in chapter 4. Yahweh causes Israel to be defeated allows the ark to be captured to demonstrate his sovereignty over the enemies of Israel and their gods. It's ultimately spiritual warfare, but it's fought at a physical level. And the purpose is to demonstrate that God is superior to Israel's enemies and their gods. He's going to cleanse Israel of the corruption of the priesthood and teach Israel to trust in him alone. God is multitasking. Just in this one battle, by defeating Israel all these things are being uh, being accomplished in First Samuel chapter First uh, Samuel chapter four. Now, this is exactly what we've seen is this whole issue of of what's going to happen at Aphek shows how Israel is really dependent upon uh, something associated with God rather than God Himself. So, the word of, the, of Samuel came to all Israel. We read in verse 1, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Eben Ezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Now judgment had already been announced, maybe as 20 years before, 10, 15, 20 years before, when the unnamed man of God in chapter 2 announces the judgment to Eli, and then it's confirmed through a revelation to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3, so all this time, Eli knows that this is coming. It's been confirmed through these two witnesses. God is bringing judgment on him and on his sons, and he's been waiting. Now he is 98 years old, we'll find out in this text, and he's going to sit back and he's going to be consumed with worry because he's been consumed with guilt for his failure over the past uh, 15 are 20 years. Israel, on the other hand, is totally divorced from God and is not following God. As we'll read in other passages, they're still worshiping the false gods of the Canaanites. They're not trusting in the sufficiency of God's grace and God's power, and so they're going to be unable to defeat the enemy. Now, we see that this is mentioned, uh, that Samuel... uh, Samuel's ministry, and this is a chart showing how these events overlap at the end of the period of the judges. We have the last uh, three judges, uh, Jephthah, Samson, and Samuel. And we see that this the Battle of Aphek down at the bottom here takes place around 1104. There's some different dates given by different scholars, so... 
don't let what, whatever happens, they come out to be, the chart looks the same, the dates may change a little bit. But what we see is that Samson is still very much active at this time. Uh, Samuel is young at this time. He's probably um, uh, somewhere around uh, 10, I mean, he's probably somewhere around 20 by this time. Saul is uh, not yet born, and this battle of Aphek takes place. The, uh, it's before the death of Jephthah, and so all, Jephthah is still alive, and this crucial battle of Aphek takes place in 1104. Twenty years later, there will be another battle at Mizpah, which reverses the results of this battle. Israel is terribly defeated in this battle, but they will have victory at Mizpah. Now, here is a map showing you the geography of the area. Uh, Jerusalem is located down here uh, in this area. It's only about uh, 20 miles or so from uh, Jerusalem up to, up to Shiloh. It's, it's not that far. And uh, then it's about 40 miles from Jerusalem over here to Joppa. Tel Aviv is in this area now. Joppa is sort of a in the center of uh, Tel Aviv's grown to a huge modern city around Joppa. And so Aphek is located uh, off here to the, to the right. And so that gives you an idea. The uh, Philistine army establishes their base here because it's on this river, the Yarkon River, uh, this is where their base camp is located. Aphek was a significant uh, city at the time, and so they, this is the northern uh, extent of their territory. Down here you have the five cities of the Philistines, Ash, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, uh, Ekron. Gaza is a little bit to the south, and this is the northern extent of their incursion into uh, the, territory, uh, the territory of Israel. Now, what's happening here is the fulfillment of God's uh, promise that if Israel is disobedient, God is going to bring discipline upon them And Leviticus 26, 17 through 19. There God said, I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And after all this... If you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. So this is the promise of God. This is the first cycle of discipline that's described here going into the second cycle of discipline. But the point here is that God is going to cause this this conquest by foreign power. So just as a nation loses freedom by compromising with with evil and with paganism, so an individual loses freedom by compromising with the sin nature. Now, let's look at a couple of things about the Philistines. The Philistines were a group known by scholars as the Sea Peoples. The Sea Peoples are described in Egyptian texts as a group of people that migrated from, from Crete. Uh, Amos 9.7 says that they originated in Kaftor, they came from other islands in the Aegean. They are uh, Hamitic, according to the Table of Nations in Genesis, and they are uh, have probably intermarried with certain uh, Greek groups, 
and so they're uh, a merger of Japhetic and Hamitic people. Some early migrations occurred as early as the 21st century, which is the time of Abraham and Isaac. They had contact with some of these initial settlements, but by the uh, 12th century, by the 1100s, their uh, invasions had been much more aggressive. Uh, they attempted to invade Egypt, but Ramesses II turned their invasion away, so they headed, uh, they headed east and uh, established five fortress cities on the coastal plain of Canaan. And those were the cities I mentioned earlier when I had the map up there, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, which is the city of Goliath, and Gaza, which uh, you, all of those are cities that still exist today. We talk about the Gaza Strip. Gaza is within the Gaza Strip. Ashdod is within the territory of modern Israel. And the, uh, the Hamas often shoot uh, missiles, rockets into, uh, into Ashdod as well as into Ashkelon and some of these other areas. The Philistines were a powerful military force. They had advanced technology, we learn from reading in, uh, in 1 Samuel. They had iron weapons and blacksmiths, whereas uh, the Israelites only had bronze weapons. Now, if you take an iron sword against a bronze sword, guess who's going to win? And so uh, later on what we're going to see is that when the Philistines conquered Israel as a result of this battle... They, uh, they exercised one of the earliest forms of gun control, arms control, in that they took all the blacksmiths out of Israel so that the Jews could not have access to the more advanced technology. And that's a principle we, we will see is that when a conquering power or a government prevents uh, citizens from having access to the same weapons the government has, then you can become a victim of tyranny. This is why we have a Second second Amendment. So the Philistines were these uh, sea people who established these fort- fortress cities, and from there they were seeking to uh, move out and conquer, uh, conquer Canaan. During the period of the judges, the second person to function as a judge is Shamgar, who's probably not... Uh, Jewish at all. His name is Hurrian, which was another group of people there, and God used them to defeat the Philistines who were making an incursion into the southern portion of, uh, of, of, of uh, Israel's territory in Judges 331. Uh, Samson is the last judge, and he just caused a lot of trouble with the Philistines, but he failed to deliver Israel, and in fact, the Philistines aren't finally and totally defeated until David does so towards the end of his life, and that's recorded in Second Samuel uh, chapter 23. Now, two places are mentioned here in terms of location, and that is, uh, let me go back a, I need to go back to the map. I'll go to this map. Uh, here we have Ebenezer and Aphek. We're not really sure where Ebenezer was located, there's some debate over whether there's one location called Ebenezer or two locations uh, named Ebenezer, but we know from archaeological discoveries about about Aphek. Aphek was located 13 miles northeast of Joppa, so it's still sort of within the metropolitan spread of Tel Aviv. 
I keep trying to get a location on it every time I go through Israel, but you just have to, when you go up the highway, you're not close enough to it. You see signs uh, off to where it's located. The, mod, the name or, or variation of it is still used, but uh, it's located there. And then you have this site called Ebenezer. Now, let me tell you something about uh, Ebenezer. This is a Hebrew word that it's a compound of two other words. Evan means a rock or a stone. And Azer means help or assistant. If you remember back in, in uh, Genesis chapter uh, 2, when God creates Eve, he says that she is going to be an Azer to Adam, a helper. The only person other than the woman in the Bible that is defined as a helper is God. And so you have mentions of Ebenezer in two places. Here in uh, chapter uh, chapter 4, again in chapter 5, verse 1, and then later on this is mentioned with reference to a battle in 7.12. That location is disputed as being something different because it seems like it's located closer to Mizpah uh, down in, in this particular area. Jerusalem is down to the south. For those of you who've been there, Here's Bethel, and so this is the highway. If you remember, when we when we headed north, we went up just past Bethel. Uh, I, I was located off to just off the highway to the right. Bethel was located off the highway to the left, and then we went on up and drove by uh, Shiloh, and then you would go further north up to uh, up to Shechem, or Shechem. So. This kind of orients you. Aphek is over here in the coastal plain. And then we have Ebenezer. Now, Ebenezer is often mentioned in a hymn that we sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And this is hymn number two in your hymnal. In hymn number two in your hymnal, you find in the second verse, Here I raise mine Ebenezer. And people sing that and don't have a clue what they're saying. In fact, one of the uh, controversial things that's happened in, in recent years is that that with the rise of contemporary Christian music, uh, there's been the attempt to try to sort of uh, update a lot of the language in various hymns. Sometimes you can do that. We're not unknown for uh, changing words to fit better theology, but we really try to make sure that it still fits and makes uh, makes good poetry. Uh, when you take a hymn, you're looking at two things. When you evaluate music, you're looking at the music on the one hand, and you're looking at the words on the other hand. And the words, if you break them up out from the from the music, they should be good quality poetry. A lot of contemporary uh, choruses are not good uh, poetry; they're rather superficial. And as a number of people have noted, part of that is we live in such a superficial world with such superficial theology uh, coming from superficial pulpits that nobody has enough depth to write hymns that had the, uh, the, the, the robust theology that we find in many of the hymns in our hymnals. Now, it's, as I point out when I talk about hymns, it's not always about old versus new because there are a lot of old hymns that aren't that good as well. There's a lot of revivalist hymns that came out in the 19th century that aren't, aren't that good. But we try to, here to sing good quality music that's married well with the, uh, with the words. But 
what happens in good hymns is that you, that you find out that these hymn writers were so immersed in Scripture. In fa- fact, some of them, like Francis Havergal, had memorized most of the Bible. And it was out of this rich, deep theology and understanding of Scripture that they would write the poetry that became our, our hymns. And this is true for uh, Robert Robinson, who penned the words, For come thou fount of every blessing. And uh, Ebenezer is a rock of help. After the second battle uh, at, at Mizpah, uh, Israel erected this monument. It's a stone monument called the Stone of Help as a reminder that this was where God helped them and gave them victory over over their enemies. And so that's applied within that hymn as a way of, the, of an individual establishing a memorial or a reminder about how God came to their assistance in a time of need. So when we sing that, we ought to sing that with knowledge and appreciation for what uh, Robinson is is saying there. His was a life that, like like many Christians, he started off with a great deal of enthusiasm. But by the t- but somewhere in his years, he got away from the Lord and then came back. That's indicated by the words in the hymn, "Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. P- prone to leave the Lord I love." And so, as God brought him back and gave him uh, victory over the issues in his life. He is raising his Ebenezer, a memorial to what God has done in his life. So uh, that's where it comes from. It comes from understanding uh, these two places. Now, I believe that this location is the same, uh, probably the same. It could be down here, but in either case, Israel had established these memorials to remind them of God's uh, sustaining them in uh, different times and in times of, of, of need. So what we see is that there's going to be a battle here. This is from an older Macmillan atlas. I always like it because they had good military maps where you have your Philistines that came out from Joppa and then others came from uh, down here in the area north of Jerusalem and they joined forces against the Israelites. Israelites are indicated by this dark black arrow and then the uh, broken line here, that represents the Philistines. They defeated them at Aphek. Aphek, and then chase them back towards Shiloh. And it is believed that after the events of chapter 4 that they destroyed the tabernacle at Shiloh and they destroyed the uh, the, the village or city there at, at Shiloh. Here's a 3D diagram to give you a little better perspective on the terrain. Uh, this is the Dead Sea and the Jordan River coming down from the upper right here in the picture. You see how Jericho's down in the valley and Gilgal's down in the valley. And then you go up on this huge ridge line that runs the length of the country from north to south. And that's really the backbone of Israel. It's the area of, of Shomron and Judea or Samaria and Judea where uh, uh, Abraham entered in from the north and walked uh, the course, the length of the uh, of the land down to uh, Bathsheba, or down to uh, Beersheba, and then here we have a picture of the Shiloh Israel troops troops in red going out at uh, Ebenezer and meeting the Philistines uh, in the battle. Now the first skirmish is mentioned 
and verse 2. Verse 2, and, and uh, I'm not going to go back to the slide there. I'll read it to you. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. When they joined battle, Israel's defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of the army in the field. So now we've had 4,000 dead. And Israel is going to come back and evaluate the situation. But a lot of times when we experience failure or difficulty in life, we ask the wrong question. And they're asking the wrong question. Uh, they're, 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 they understand that the Lord has defeated them, but the way they're addressing the problem is they think that, that by taking the ark, they, that's the problem is they didn't use the right, go through the right motions or have the right ritual. And so they're approaching God as if he is some sort of talisman or, or good luck charm. And so they do identify the fact that this is a spiritual problem. When the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The answer should be, because we have sinned, because we have gone into idolatry, because we have violated the law of Moses, we need to turn back to the Lord, we need to confess our sin, and we need to seek in humility the Lord's, uh, the Lord's strength in the battle. But that's not what they do. They, ignoring the sin problem that is at the root of their defeat, they decide to uh, just have the trappings of Christianity. It's like using a lot of Bible verses out of context. We're just going to go grab the ark, and that's going to give us Give us good luck. So they said, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. The problem is that God had already indicated to them that their freedom, their prosperity, their national security was all dependent upon their obedience to the law. And since they had rejected the law and were in disobedience, God was going to put them under the oppression of their enemies. And as a result of their moral and spiritual relativism, they had absorbed the religious and moral values of the pagan culture around them. In New simplified New Testament terms, they were conformed to the world. They were trying to uh, be religious in terms of how the world defined religious and not conforming to the law of Moses. So what do they do? So the, what they did was they sent a group to go to Shiloh, verse 4. So they, people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts. Now that's the full title, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubs. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, do you see a problem here? You have these two apostate sons of Eli who are bringing the Ark into battle. That ought to set off a few, a few bells. So what's happened here is the elders of Israel have partially recognized the problem, and that is that God... Uh, God has defeated them, that God is against them, but they haven't correctly analyzed uh, the underlying problem. 
And so they come up with pseudo-solutions. And this often happens with Christians in their own spiritual life. Uh, it's amazing when I teach certain topics that are related to suffering, adversity, difficulty, problem-solving, attendance goes up a little bit. People are more attentive to those things because it hits them more, especially if they're going through difficult times. And then as soon as things smooth out, they quit coming to Bible class. And I've seen this for 30, over 30 years of, of ministry, is that people come not to learn and to uh, grow and mature as believers, but they, when things go bad, then they start showing up uh, in Bible class. Then they get out their Bible and they start reading it. Then they say, okay, I need to start praying. And they're basically trying to use God. They're not humbling themselves under God. They're just going through these motions. I haven't done this. Now, if I start reading my Bible, if I start praying, if I start going to Bible class, then maybe God will bless me. And as soon as things change, then they think that that somehow this has worked. But that's the same mentality that you have in so many of these large health and wealth, gospel, prosperity, name it and claim it, whatever you want to call it, theology churches, that, that if we just sort of uh, use the right terminology and if we just uh, hold our mouth right then uh, and we claim that and say all the right magic words talking about God, the Bible, and Jesus, that somehow God's going to bless us. And that's the problem that we have here. It's a, they, they want to do the right thing, which is defeat the enemy, but they don't want to do it God's way. They want to do it uh, based on their own way. So they want to do a right thing, uh, the wrong way. Now, when we look at this verse, I want to point out a couple of things because there's a hint of sarcasm here. And what what I like about chapter four and chapter five is is it gets much more sarcastic. And we see that God has a a pretty earthy sense of humor, and He really pokes fun at at the uh, Philistines. We live in an era today that's just dominated by so much uh, political correctness, and Jesus isn't politically correct. And some of the things that are going on with the what I uh, read about the millennial generation is they want a God who is tolerant, and they don't want to deal with sin. The problem is that God is intolerant of sin. He loves the sinner, but he is intolerant of sin. And we see this at places like Sodom and Gomorrah, and we see it in, in events like this. We see it in a number of other places where God brings judgment on, on Israel, and we see how, it, how Jesus is completely intolerant of the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But it, that's because God has defined how we should live our life and we should live uh, in harmony with him. Now, as we look at this verse... First thing we see is that there's an emphasis on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this Ark is called the Ark of the Covenant because associated with the Ark, some people think it was originally placed inside the Ark. Others, it was placed before the Ark. We have the the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The Covenant of God uh, was kept with the Ark of the Covenant. He's called the Lord of Hosts. The Hebrew word for hosts is the word uh, Sabaoth. Now you hear, see that in some hymns, like Luther's A Mighty Fortress is Our God, tonight's hymn night. 
that he is called Lord Sabaoth. That's not Sabbath. That's not some antiquated way of writing Sabbath. When I was a kid, I thought that. Uh, but it is a Hebrew word for the army. Sabaoth refers to the host, which is an antiquated uh, English word, which refers to a, an, an army, a, a military group. And so it should be translated the Lord of the Armies. And whenever you see that, it brings into focus the fact that it's not just the armies of Israel, it's the armies of the elect angels, the armies of the holy angels. So it's one of these places where we see the intersection of the material physical world with the invisible uh, immaterial world, that the battle of Is- this battle of Aphek is part of the angelic conflict. And it's related to uh, God defending his righteousness and his justice. And he's described as the one who dwells between the cherubim. Now that I am ending, which is preserved in the New King James and the King James, is a plural in Hebrew. A lot of mo- some modern translations just translated cherubs and seraphs, or another term, seraphim, or another classification, uh, classification of angels. And there's a number of things that are that can, we can say about the, the cherubs. And I think I have a picture here of the of the ark that demonstrates this. This is the mercy seat. This this is the lid that covered the ark. The term ark just refers to a box. And it was inside of that box that uh, the uh, that the law was kept, and the mercy seat is a, the place where the high priest on Yom Kippur, which is coming up in a week, Yom Kippur is the day of atonement, and on the day of atonement, the high priest would enter into the holy of holies, and would put blood on the mercy seat, and the direction of the gaze of the two uh, cherubim was to focus upon the fact that the blood uh, covered the sins or dealt with the sins of the broken law that's inside of the uh, of, of the box. In the in the Bible we have three different groups of 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 angels that are identified probably uh, I'll, I'll cover that in just a second. You have cherubs and seraphs. And cherubs are mentioned in a number of places. You have them mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 when God placed cherubs to guard the uh, tree of life so that man could not go back into the Garden of Eden. And the cherubs, this army of cherubs, guarded the garden. It wasn't just one or two. It was a number of them. If it was one, it would have been a singular. If it was two, it would have been a dual ending in the Hebrew. So it's at least three, probably a large cohort of, of, of cherubs guarded uh, the garden. Uh, two cherubs were depicted in gold covering the uh, mercy seat. And that's described in Exodus chapter 25, verses 18 to 22 and 37, 7 to 9. And on the curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies the outer chamber from the inner chamber there were cherubs woven into the curtains as well as depicted upon the side panels and the ceiling panels in the tabernacle and later in the temple 
Uh, the throne of God was guarded by seraphim, who are uh, somewhat similar, but uh, described a little differently, so they would be a different uh, uh, type or genus of angels described in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 through 6. Now, Ezekiel begins in the first part of Ezekiel in chapter 1, describing four living creatures. That term is used in Revelation uh, chapter 4 and 5. And then it appears that these four living creatures who appear to be similar to the cherubim are then called cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 10, verses uh, 1 through 20. And so you have this special class of angels, probably just two, the cherubim and the seraphim, who are associated with guarding the holiness and the righteousness of God. They're, they're, they're seen as guarding and overshadowing uh, his, his, his throne. Uh, this is another depiction of the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 25:22. God says that it was there, I will meet with you, talking to Moses, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the Ark of the Testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And so this it becomes a, a significant description of God that he is the one who dwells between the cherubs. And this is this phrase is used uh, several times in the scripture uh, to describe uh, the ark and to describe uh, to describe God. The ark itself was a box that was made of hard acacia wood. Now, the reason acacia wood is used is that it's a very hard, dense wood, and it is uh, it is it is not likely to rot or to deteriorate over time. And then the gold covered it. The dimensions of the ark was it was a box that was about four and a half feet, and it was about this wide. And it was about two and a quarter feet, about, it was about this long and about two and a quarter feet wide and about two and a quarter feet high, as described in Exodus chapter 25, verse 10. It's a symbol of the presence and the glory of God, according to Numbers 14, 23. It was associated with three things where Israel had violated the command of God. The, the law, the commandments that were broken, and then it was, and in this picture, this is taken of the um, the model they have at the uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness in Israel. But they have put placed the law and Aaron's rod that budded and a bowl here where manna would have been kept inside the box. Uh, there's dispute because of the prepositions that are used in the scripture, uh, and they they're not consistent. But I think that originally they were inside the ark, then they were placed outside along with the ark, and then probably the manna and Aaron's rod disappeared, perhaps at this time when the ark gets captured by the Philistines and Shiloh was, was overrun. But they depicted three instances where the Israelites disobeyed God, and the mercy seat shows his forgiveness for man's disobedience. The gold and the wood are used to represent as a symbol, the deity and the humanity of Christ. The gold represents his deity, and the humanity is represented by the wood, which is impermeable, which pictures his sinlessness. 
And then the mercy seat itself represents the propitiation of God's righteousness and justice by the sacrifice. So, and, and the uh, emphasis here with the ark is it reminds us of the holiness and the righteousness of God, which has been violated by Israel, and in fact is, is terribly violated by uh, the two sons of Eli. And so there's a, a, a tremendous amount of irony here that these two apostate, uh, debauched priests are carrying or bringing the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle uh, into uh, into battle. And so this begins the uh, tragedy of what will take place. So as we wrap up, I want to point something out by going to another passage in Scripture. I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. What we learn from this lesson, the reason Israel is defeated is not because they lack the military skill it's not because they lack the technology. It's not because they lack leadership. It's not because they lack education or any social factor. It is because they're disobedient to God. And we're going to look in Joshua 7 at another uh, similar example to that. It is because they are spiritually disobedient that leads to uh, spiritual failure. And the second point is that spiritual disobedience is not going to be honored by God, and he's going to take the nation through a horrible, uh, horrible judgment. And it is going to rock that generation, and for the next 20 years, Israel is going to be under the tyranny of the Philistines and in, in grief over the fact that it appears that God has, has left them. Now, if you go to Joshua, Joshua chapter uh, 6 describes the battle, the great battle, the victory. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and they win the battle. And they're told that they are to kill every man, woman, and child. All the beasts are not to take any of the valuables, any of the gold, any of the silver, and that is supposed to be put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. That's God's money. Now what happens at the beginning of chapter 7 is one Israelite, a man by the name of Achan, uh, takes these things that have been set aside for the Lord. They're called accursed, but the word there is, uh, is a word that refers to being set aside. It's a ban. It is the Hebrew word harem. Now harem, what do you think of when you think of the word harem? You think of a group of women that are in sub-Arab Sheikh's harem. That's right. They have been set aside and set apart for his usage. That's what that word refers to. Uh, and so the, that's that root meaning. Well, he has stolen from God, and he's taken treasure uh, from Jericho, and he's buried it under his tent. And so the next day, the Israelites are going to go out. They're full of themselves because they've had great victory. Now they think God's going to give them victory. So 3,000 go to Ai, which is not a very large place, and they think they're going to have victory. And what happens is they, uh, they, they get ambushed. Uh, they lose uh, uh, 30, what is it, 34 men are killed in the battle. And they suffer this horrible defeat, and they run. 36 men, verse 5, 36 men are killed, and they're chased off. 
And as Joshua just goes into serious grief over this in verse 6, he tears his clothes, falls to the earth before God, and he says, Lord, why have you brought this people over the Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? He's essentially blaming God. Why have you done this? Why have we defeated? And God says, uh, basically says to him, the problem is there's sin in the camp, and that's got to be dealt with. There has, to be con- there has to be confession and removal of the sin, that's the picture here, before Israel can then go forth into battle. They have to align themselves with God and do God's work God's way uh, and confess their sin. And so they go through this process where God uh, shows that it's the family of Achan, and Achan confesses his sin in verse 20. He says, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. One of the things in confession, in 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, it doesn't say if we confess our sinfulness. It says if we confess our sins, admit our sins, identify, admit what the sins are. It doesn't mean go through a grocery list and just say things like, lying, deception, that's impersonal. That's not related. It's an admission of guilt. I did this. I did that. It's not just reading a grocery list of sins. Uh, what does that mean? It mean? Confession is I did X. I was arrogant. I was a liar. I was deceptive. I gossiped. I committed adultery. I committed murder. I, Whatever it might be, I was an idolater. It is a personal statement to God of what we have done. So it goes through this process. He confesses his sins, but then there has to be consequences. And so he is going to uh, be taken out in the sin unto death and executed for for his disobedience. So what we see in this is that God does not honor spiritual uh, disobedience and eventually brings to bear an accounting in the life of Israel. And the same kind of thing happens today. We see people who think they can use God for their purposes without doing things the right way. And they just think that as long as they're using Bible verses, waving their Bible around, using the name of God, um, that, that somehow God's going to bless them. And we see this a lot. It's pop Christianity, pop Evangelical Christianity is often divorced from the text, and they're just using a lot of things that they think are biblical, uh, but they're really not looking at what the what the Scripture says. Now, next time we'll come back, we'll start off in verse 7, and we'll get into uh, what is going on here in the battle itself and leading up to the episodes of chapter 5. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening. Pray that you would uh, help us to understand that we have to do, live our lives the right way, your way, and that we need to be living in complete dependence upon you. And Father, that is the only way in which we are going to experience the kind of success and the kind of prosperity and happiness that you describe in the scripture, not necessarily physical, material prosperity, but a soul prosperity and a soul happiness that goes beyond anything that we can imagine. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.